This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Brad Stone, Senior Executive Editor of Bloomberg LP and author of the new book, The Upstarts, where we discuss the backstory of Uber and Airbnb and their evolution in the sharing economy. Last but not least, Brad shared his thoughts on Didi and the founder Chen Wei and Airbnb's chances of success in their recent launch in China. Hi, Brad. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. In Singapore, lunchtime. Where are you now? I am in Mill Valley, California. It's right north of San Francisco, and it is nine o'clock at night. Yes, and I am really looking forward to doing this interview with you. And I'm talking to Brad Stone, Senior Executive Editor of Bloomberg LP and author of two books, which I'm a fan of, The Everything Store and recently, The Upstarts. Brad, I've been following a lot on your articles in Bloomberg Technology and also your podcast, Decrypted. I want to start off by getting to know you better. How do you start your career? Yeah, thanks, Bernard, and thanks for having me on the Analyze Asia podcast. I started my career in, boy, this is going to make me sound old, but the 1990s, I was writing for Newsweek magazine, and this was back when the internet was fairly new, or at least it was fairly new to consider what the impact of the internet was going to be on business and culture. And at the time, I was using the internet, and I just thought this was a way to get into these competitive magazines like Newsweek, uh, where I was working at the time, and then I went to work at the New York Times. And so really, I just started writing about technology. I moved out to San Francisco in 1998. You know, I covered the first internet boom and then the internet bust. And now, you know, the gradual reemergence of of technology and smartphones and social networks and the things that are changing all of our lives. So currently with Bloomberg, uh, what are the topics you are currently covering in terms of technology? Is it mostly consumer or enterprise? Yeah, well, Bernard, you know, I run the technology coverage at Bloomberg. And so we have 51 reporters and editors around the world. We've got probably about 15 to 20 in Asia, you know, in Beijing and Hong Kong and Tokyo and Bangalore and Singapore. We cover everything from, you know, Nintendo and the Toshiba saga to the dramas of La Echo. And, you know, here in the U.S., it's been all about Uber these past few months and self-driving cars and Facebook and fake news and how it's contributed to things like Brexit and the, and the U.S. election. And so it's a fairly large domain that we cover and, and increasingly important. And then while I kind of oversee the tech coverage, I also contribute as well. I write part of our daily newsletter called Fully Charged, which people can find on Bloomberg.com slash technology. And I continue to write for our magazine, Business Week, write about things like e-commerce. And I try to, you know, visit companies like Samsung when I can. You know, recently, as you know, came and did a story about Didi in, in China. And, you know, so I continue to write as well on all, you know, companies and technologies that are making an impact on the world. In your career, what are the interesting career lessons you can share with my audience? (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, I guess for journalists, it might be find your story and commit to it. I mean, that's why I feel very lucky to have followed Silicon Valley and technology in general. It's really, in some ways, the story of our lives, because 
you know, you look at all the massive changes just in the past 25 years. So find the story you're passionate about and always kind of think in terms of that, you know, your career in terms of like the long term that you're going to be in the business for a long time. And, you know, it makes sense to make deep and long term connections and not only have the next story in mind, because, you know, if you want to be in this business a long time, it kind of pays to have that approach. So before we're going to come to the major topic of today, I want to ask you this question because I read your forward in the Everything Store and I like your story on how you wrote the six-page proposal to Jeff Bezos because there's Amazon's culture of trying to evaluate new ideas. And what actually inspired you to write the Everything Store and then subsequently the Upstarts? Yeah, well, let's start with the, the Everything Store. You know, this was probably when I decided to write that book. It was probably 2011. There had been great books about Facebook and Apple and Microsoft and, and Google. And I just sort of realized that nobody had yet told the Amazon story. You know, that was not an accident. Amazon is very secretive and they are up in Seattle. And for a long time, they weren't considered to be one of the big technology companies. You know, they were sort of considered to be a feeble Internet retailer and, and everyone counted them out. And so I had been covering Amazon for uh, the New York Times uh, and then for Business Week and realized that, you know, this company, not just because of, you know, the retail business, but also Amazon Web Services and everything they were doing with the Kindle. You know, I realized that this was going to be one of those companies that we did talk of in the same breath as Apple and Facebook and Google. And so I feel like I just got a little bit of an early start on it, you know, and it was a time when the book publishing industry was beginning to really consider Amazon's dominance because of the battle over the Kindle at the time. You know, I went and I pitched the idea and I found a lot of interest in it. And then I brought the idea to Amazon, as you say, in the in the form of one of their six page narratives where, you know, which is how they start new businesses. And they weren't very enthusiastic about it, but I kind of plowed ahead anyway. And eventually they began to cooperate to some extent, you know, and that was the story of the everything store. It was really kind of a great combination of a great story to tell because the Amazon story is really an up the amazing kind of emergence in the 90s. And then this seven year period where everybody just counted them out and yet they refused to stop and they created a bunch of new businesses. And and now, of course, we think of them you know, potentially one day being perhaps the largest company in the world. And Jeff Bezos, of course, is the second wealthiest uh, man in the world. And so that was that book. And again, great convergence of nobody had told the story and, and the interest in the company was rising. And when I finished that book, I was really just out looking for something else. And of course, this is now 2014. Both Uber and Airbnb had emerged from this new new wave of momentum in Silicon Valley propelled by smartphones and social networks. And they were really this, these two, the two unavoidable juggernauts. And it, I was sort of trying to decide which one I wanted to do when it occurred to me, well, you know, with Amazon, I had 20 years of history. With these companies, I really had less than 10 years each. And so I decided, why not combine them? And it'll be less about the companies and more about this very peculiar and momentous period in time when both of these companies emerged and achieved liftoff. And today, which is the main topic of the day, we are going to discuss your book, The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World. I have read the book page to page over a weekend and it was really great. I understand the focus of the book is to define the companies who have initiated the sharing economy with Uber and Airbnb being the two most successful stories. Can you discuss why you were interested in writing their backstories from their early days to them scaling into behemoths today? 
Well, it's I don't know that there's like a very complicated reason other than that I look for great stories. And, you know, like the story of Uber is almost unbelievable. I mean, this company emerges in San Francisco in 2010. And in the span of five years, it spreads to, you know, 200 plus cities all around the world. It raises, you know, over $10 billion in, you know, in the, in the first six years. It has a ma- massive battle with rivals in the U.S. and China. And really, it leaves a string of conflict and controversy and sometimes even chaos in its wake. And of course, people listening have heard the the headlines. And, you know, and then behind the company, you've got this unique character in the CEO, Travis Kalanick, and, uh, you know, who is competitive and fearsome and ruthless, you know, and is probably responsible for a lot of the controversy that the company has gotten itself into. So, you know, and then Airbnb, a very similar story, you know, different people, different characters, different industry, of course, but similar in that both companies were approaching very old regulatory regimes where there hadn't been a lot of disruption or innovation. This is transportation and hospitality. And coming out with uh, internet ideas and internet speed, encountering a lot of resistance in the, for Airbnb in the form of hotels and hotel unions and community groups and legislators or you know politicians who wanted to curtail its power. Both companies had to resort to kind of populist tactic, mobilizing their customer bases, their hosts or their drivers or their riders or guests to try to go and change the law on their behalf. So, you know, the, the internet companies of the past, they got to kind of hide a little bit. You know, they didn't really have to deal with politicians or regulators. You know, Google probably didn't have to deal with politicians until it was 10 plus years old. You know, certainly that's true for Amazon. But Uber and Airbnb, I mean, these companies, like, they were fighting right off the bat. I mean, Uber got its first cease and desist in San Francisco three months after it launched. And of course, you know, everyone is probably very well familiar with the battles city by city, country by country that both of these companies faced since they founded. So why was I interested in writing their backstories? Because it's the best kind of story, you know, conflict from the beginning and then great business lessons that you can derive from it. Both companies share different founder origin stories. Can you share how they were each founded and yet evolved differently? Yeah, well, you know, I'd like to say like every marketplace business has to make a decision. Are you going to focus on the supply side first or the demand side first? You can pick any marketplace business and it'll be sort of obvious where they focus first. For example, eBay was very much focused early on on its buyers. And then as a result, after a while, the sellers got a little disgruntled. For Airbnb, this was always a a supplier or a host-driven business. The founders were Joe Gebbia and Brian Chesky were design school graduates living in San Francisco and, and basically just scraping by, trying to find a business idea, you know, enamored with the culture in Silicon Valley, enamored with the idea of success. And one of the ideas they hit upon in the fall of 2007 was renting out their own home in the South of Market neighborhood of San Francisco, members of a conference where all the hotels were sold out. This was a business that they kind of toyed with for the next year and a half, finally got their uh, one of their very smart engineering friends, Nate Blachersik, interested, and then went into the Y Combinator School. But if we're going to put into a little summary of how they started, well, they really started catering to their host community, flying to places like New York City and visiting hosts helping them take photos of their lodgings of their apartments and present them in a nicer way online. Uber, to just shift gears, was very much the demand side of the marketplace. Garrett Camp was a, a successful internet entrepreneur living in San Francisco. He had sold a business to eBay. 
And he, and he realized uh, as he was living a newly social lifestyle after becoming wealthy and trying to go out a lot at night, he realized that the taxi service in San Francisco was really bad. And he had just seen uh, the movie Casino Royale, the James Bond movie. And there's a scene in that movie where James Bond's looking at his phone and he sees uh, basically what, what looks like Uber on his Sony Ericsson phone. And it was a product placement at the time, but it inspired Garrett to try to do something like that for passengers. Like, could you press a button on your phone? And then see the various taxis or limos moving to you and have them pick you up and, and, and you pay them without cash. Garrett, Garrett didn't like to carry cash. So that was another part of the early Uber system. It took him a couple of years to get Uber off the ground. And, of course, then he, he got his friend uh, Travis Kalanick to run it. And it was always a very demand-driven business. How can they grow? How can they get make this more and more appealing to people in major cities? Well, of course, one way is to constantly drive prices down. So that's one reason why Uber grew very quickly, very fast around the world. They were constantly looking for ways to drive down the prices of rides and to make it more competitive vis-a-vis rivals like Lyft, but also vis-a-vis other transportation options like owning your own car. And so it's very much in stark contrast to Airbnb kind of demand-driven, whereas Airbnb was somewhat supply-driven. And, you know, I think perhaps not a surprise either that both of these companies started in San Francisco. They had very early mentors in the form of some very smart venture capitalists, one from Sequoia at Airbnb, Bill Gurley at Benchmark at Uber. And, you know, and these were the launch pads that made these two companies global businesses in a very short amount of time. From reading your book, I understand that Airbnb actually have the perfect team combination. You can think of Brian as the hustler, Joe as the hacker, and uh, Nathan as the hipster. I guess you can think about it different ways. And then they actually took some time to find the right product market fit until they figure out when they win Y Combinator by going to New York. Well, Uber found it very early. What kind of lessons do you think startup founders can actually learn from these two companies? Because one interesting thing about Uber is Travis Kalanick didn't become the CEO. He actually hired someone to run it in the form of Ryan Graves, right? And then after that, he became the CEO. So can you share a little bit about what are the interesting lessons learned by the startup founders who can learn from these companies? There, there are so many interesting lessons, and some of them will be apparent to other folks that I probably haven't even thought of from looking at these accounts. But I think one thing, and you mentioned it's like everybody underestimated these businesses early on. Like even Travis and Garrett, you know, weren't all that interested in running Uber. They thought at the very beginning that it was a little limousine business in this in their city to help them live better lifestyles. A lot of the investors passed on both of these companies. 150 of the 165 investors who get the AngelList email. This is a sort of email newsletter that goes to investors. And this is in 2010. 150 of them passed in the Uber email. So a lot of these businesses didn't appeal to even the smartest investors and entrepreneurs. And I think that's one lesson, which is that sometimes the future might be staring us in the face and we don't see it. It's not always that there is a light bulb that goes off or an apple falls on your head. You know, these guys pushed ahead when not a lot of people believed in them. And sometimes they didn't even believe themselves. So it's sometimes like we can we're surprised by the future. I think that's an interesting lesson. Like even the smartest people who study the future for a living can be surprised by it. And if that's the case, then you have to take a certain approach to innovating. You have to try a lot of different things. You have to watch carefully for, you know, for at the data and for customer reactions and then tailor it as you see fit. The Uber story, they see that's taking off. Travis goes to be the CEO. And then an interesting thing happened. You know, they were working with black cars or and licensed chauffeurs when Lyft came around with the ride sharing business model. And that was, you know, to allow anybody to 
drive their car without a license. And, you know, Uber was somewhat set its way. Travis originally didn't like Lyft. He thought it was illegal and he even tried to shut it down. But then, you know, after a couple of months, he realized that, you know, that people were responding to this. Regulators weren't shutting down. And he changed his whole business model and basically turned UberX into a ride-sharing network. That's another lesson, you know. You, you, do, you do have to watch the market and look. Even if you consider yourself a disruptor, there's always another company that can come around and disrupt you. You know, it paid for both of these companies to be constantly vigilant. One of the great aspects of the, the Airbnb story, too, Bernard, is how, you know, Nate was sort of this spamming genius from earlier in his life in high school and college. He had made a million dollars creating spam tools. And, you know, he, the way he was able to use some kind of growth hacking techniques to stimulate demand for Airbnb, basically to dip into Craigslist traffic and get people over to Airbnb is a great lesson for founders. Sometimes you got to get a little creative, maybe come close to the line, the, the ethical line a little bit, you know, in terms of finding, you know, not just finding product market fit, but getting the flywheel going on your business. You know, it's hard to get people's attention now. And Airbnb was very methodical and very clever about how they did it in the early years. One defining feature I discovered from reading your book and also looking at these two companies is the culture of the companies. With Airbnb, whenever you go to any of their office, actually I've interviewed head of Airbnb for Southeast Asia a while ago, two years back. I walked in and I was being greeted and the hospitality culture just pervades across the company early in the morning because there was only there was no receptionist and somebody just took me into the place and was very hospitable to me. While Uber has this very anti-establishment and willing to break rules that seems to come from Travis Kalanick, but I think the collective culture is actually about fighting the establishment. So do you think that their cultures are part of the reason why they are more successful against the other competitors that were around the same time, which I think you did a very very good coverage, for example, like couch surfing and hello. Right. Yeah, I have this chapter in the book called The Non-Starters that focuses on the companies that were very similar to Airbnb and Uber, but didn't go anywhere. You know, Couchsurfing is funny because it's very much like Airbnb, but they registered themselves as a nonprofit. And as a result, it was very hard for them to go and, and do the things they needed to do to hire and scale their business. It took them a long time to try to undo that. And so I think of it as like every startup needs a combination of idealism and ruthlessness. And those things have to be in a very careful balance. You know, the idealism is your mission, you know, the, how you want to change the world for the better, the cultural things that let you inspire employees and hire new employees. Airbnb does a great job in balancing the two. You know, they really have this mission to restore authenticity to, tra to travel, to make it so that you're just not on a tour, but you're experiencing a city and living there like a local. But at the same time, they don't like to talk about this as much as, you know, they've got to fight somewhat ruthlessly, you know, laws or impulses to pass laws in cities that would limit the number of days and nights that people can list their properties. They need a little bit of both. You know, couch surfing is, you know, definitely a company that had way too much idealism, not enough ruthlessness. And then you mentioned Halo, and there were plenty of other companies that preceded uh, Uber and Lyft. And by and large, they were working with the licensed yellow taxi fleet, or we call them yellow taxis here, the licensed medallion cabs. Well, the problem with doing that all around the world. Halo started in London, but there were some in the US and, and China. The problem is that you couldn't, if fares were set by the city or the state, you couldn't raise fares over the weekends when things got busier during the rain. You couldn't just add cars because you can't just kind of add a taxi car to the street. They were very limited, and it really took the more ruthless approach of Ubers to kind of use this unlicensed supply of, of black cars and eventually, you know, everyone's just regular car, you know, to go and, and basically break the stranglehold that the, that the transportation industry, the taxi industry, 
had on the market. And so a company like Halo or Taxi Magic in the US, you know, they didn't do it. Now, there there's some obviously the the market grew differently in places like Singapore and Beijing where, you know, a company like Didi and I I'm pretty sure Grab, they did start using licensed supply, but then they very quickly kind of grew into these other other areas. So, you know, we, we can also look at Uber and say, you know, the ruthlessness and the idealism are a little out of balance, right? And that might maybe has contributed to some of the drama more recently. Maybe it was a little bit, I think it's clear that it is a little bit too much of a ruthless organization. And some of the headlines we're seeing right now reflect that. Which comes to my next question. I mean, with Uber's recent troubles uh, from their toxic workplace culture, the legal lawsuits from Alphabet's Waymo on auto, and the tactics they adopt from grayballing as reported by the New York Times and also the HAL program for Lyft, what are your thoughts on whether they can come back from these crises and actually become a better company? I think I'm being optimistic, but maybe what are your thoughts on that? No, I think that's a good question, Bernard. Look, it's not a surprise that they recently went to my Bloomberg colleague, Eric Newcomer, and they revealed some of their internal financial data. And they said that they had generated $6.5 billion in revenue last year with gross bookings, I think, about $20 billion. That was 2x over 2015. And they had a fairly significant loss, close to $3 billion. But these are startup numbers at, at that scale, too. And so when you ask me, can Uber survive, those numbers tell a pretty dramatic story. That This is a, a company whose service still appeals to a lot of people. More and more people are embracing it. They're leaving their cars at home. They're choosing Uber versus other transportation alternatives. And so, look, I mean, they need to hire a COO. Uh, this is uh, someone that Travis Kalanick said that he's going to hire. They still have a rocky journey to make over the next couple of months because there's an internal report that's supposed to come out about some of these scandals you mentioned uh, that a former attorney general in the U.S. named Eric Holder is supposed to rate. And so, look, the scandal's probably not over, but I think, yes, I think the answer is they can they can uh, survive it. And it's because, put simply, they have a service that people love and have embraced. You know, I think they probably may need to make some adjustments, get the cash burned down. But, you know, it's not just Uber either. They've got a budding meal service in Uber Eats and a logistics platform in Uber Rush. And it's a, you know, it's a company that has proven itself capable of trying a lot of new, a new things. So I'm fairly optimistic. We could talk about driverless cars because obviously that's the distant future of the, of the company. And there's still a lot of question marks there, particularly with the lawsuit you mentioned. But, you know, the numbers tell me that Uber is not going to be a victim of these news headlines or these scandals. It might be a victim of its inability to mature, but we'll have to see that over the next couple of years. And I'm definitely not going to let you get away because I want to talk about Asia. So you have covered Didi from China and you have met Cheng Wei, who is the founder, and Jin Liu, who is now the president of the company. What are your impressions of them? And how do you characterize the exit that was negotiated between both companies? Because I know you have a very interesting story to tell about that in the book. Yeah, no, I really had fun in Beijing meeting Cheng Wei. I think it was last summer, last fall, that I, I went to Beijing and was able to spend uh, an afternoon with Cheng Wei with my colleague Lulu Chen, who translated because uh, Cheng Wei's English is not uh, great and my Chinese is, you know, not non-existent. You know, I was just impressed. I was impressed by the story that they had to tell. Like, Didi was not the only ride-sharing company to emerge in 2012 in Beijing. I think there were maybe some 200 or so, probably only a couple of dozen after the first year. But still, you know, they would face more competition 
than any any of these companies did in the U.S. or Europe. And, you know, Cheng Wei was, and you know, he they call him Will at the company. And, you know, Will was smart. You know, he did a couple things. Well, one, he, you know, he went and, and forged a strategic alliance with Pony Ma at Tencent when his primary rival, Kwai Di, had raised money from Alibaba, where Will used to work. And, you know, it turned out that the alliance with uh, Pony Ma was the smartest thing you could do because this is at a time when WeChat was taking off and when all these payment systems were taking off. And so it just surprised me the extent to which how strong that partnership was between Tencent and Didi and how, you know, Will really put the company in the position to succeed when Alibaba and Tencent started fighting over their different payment platforms. And look, I mean, he's been very practical, you know, and he's made some necessary moves. And he, but he's always come out on top, right, with the merger with Kwai Di, you know, where he ended up as the CEO. And then ultimately with the merger with Uber, you know, where Uber takes a 17% ownership stake. Didi pays Uber a billion dollar in cash, but it's mutually advantageous. It's a huge victory for, for Will and for Didi. And, you know, now they're in a position to really solidify their stronghold in China. They still have some regulatory battles to overcome there, particularly in terms of, you know, the drivers that have access to the Didi platform. But now this is a company that can go and perhaps compete with Uber in other parts of the world. So, you know, you got to give him credit. He really has come out on top. And I think the other interesting point is that I hear this from a former Baidu executive that Uber has the greed tactics and even questionable ethics at times similar to how Chinese companies operating in China. And to him, they actually exceeded pretty well with a $2 billion losses and gaining back $7 billion market value with the DD, with DD acquiring Uber China. Do you think that Airbnb, who has recently launched in China, can succeed in China? given that they just launched there, do you think the same dynamic will play out or does Airbnb have a different kind of competitive advantage entering China? First of all, I think we have to use their new name in China, right? Isn't it IBing? Yeah, the IBing, correct. That's right. Uh, let's see. So it's funny because a couple of years ago, they made a big deal about launching in China. Like Uber, they said they wanted to go and hire a CEO, a local CEO. And then not a lot happened. They never hired anyone. And their local competitor and Bernard, tell me if I mispronounce this. Is it, is it Tushia? Yes, Tushia. And Xiaozhu as well. That's right. the other competitor as well. Yes. And we saw the same thing which is that we saw in Uber's case, which is a sort of convergence of capital uh, around the local player. And so companies like C-Trip and I can't remember who the other investors are, but yeah, right. They raised a lot of money. And so... You know, I think Airbnb, I think we have to consider them the now the underdog in China. I think, of course, every American company is the underdog in China. So, no, I don't think they can dominate China in the way they have dominated other parts of the world. But Airbnb will not go away in China because it's a it's fundamentally a global network and has a global network effect. And so, you know, to the extent that you have U.S. travelers visiting China that want to that want to stay in an Airbnb or travelers from other parts of Asia going to China, you know, that's always that's going to be a big market. And so, you know, I, I see them having a kind of foothold in China that perhaps Uber was not able to sustain. Ride sharing is a basically a street fight city by city in terms of kind of achieving a network effect. And so Didi was always going to have an advantage I think Airbnb, you know, can have a pretty big business. And look, this is the largest, potentially the largest travel market in the world, the, the largest kind of generation of millennials. And, you know, and, and they might embrace Airbnb. And so I, I wouldn't count them out. But, you know, I think that 
it's gonna it's hard to change a narrative for an American company in China. There are so many factors that are situated against you, and as long as the, all this capital remains available to all sorts of players, you know it'll be hard for Airbnb to use its capital advantage to go and dislocate some of these local players. So you know, despite the great uh, Chinese name I being, you know, I think it's gonna be hard. But you know, I wouldn't count them out in China. And the, and the other thing, sorry, the other thing that I haven't mentioned yet is their experiences platform, their trips platform where they want to be more than lodgings. They want to be what you do at night, where you go to dinner, how you make your travel reservations. And these are all ways in which Airbnb can, you know, partly succeed in, in China and around the world. It doesn't really have to command the whole home sharing market for it to be a success there. And I think Airbnb did the right thing by not acquiring the Samuel Brothers window, which we actually also talk about in the book when they did their international expansion. I think that that was totally the right move. Before the sale of Uber China to Didi, there's actually an anti-alliance of Lyft, Didi, Grab from Southeast Asia and Ola from India. So moving forward, because of this consolidation, what are your thoughts on how the ride-sharing market is going to move forward? Do you think there's going to be consolidation or do they have to wait till the self-driving car revolution takes place and then that will create a new battleground for them? Oh, well, that's a good question. And, and I'd be interested in, in what your thoughts are about Grab there in Singapore. You know, it, it does seem to be that with these smaller players, there's a little bit more uncertainty. For example, Ola in India just raised another $250 million from SoftBank, but its valuation went down. I think that it had to take a kind of 40% lower valuation than it had had last year. And it shows that, you know, an Uber, now that it's out of China, is investing pretty heavily in India and, and, and Southeast Asia, particularly India, though. And so, you know, I think it is a, it's tough for these companies. Now, as we said, ride sharing is a local business and, and these companies have local advantages. So I wouldn't count them out. I think it partly does have to do with the overall economic climate. None of these companies are profitable right now. If tomorrow they had to get to profitability, you know, we might see Ola and Grab, you know, get sold to either Uber and Didi at, at pretty heavy discounts because they can't make it work right now. But, you know, if SoftBank and other investors keep giving them money and in two and three years, there's no increased demand on them to go public or to get profitable, you know, then they can continue to compete. So I do think ultimately, though, there will have to be some consolidation. And one of the main reasons is what you mentioned, which is the future of this business is self-driving cars. And I don't think that every every company is going to be able to go and compete. You know, I think there's going to be a few winners and these are going to be very large companies with the capital to go and acquire these vehicles at scale and, and roll them out in partnership with cities. And so that's going to be a complex undertaking. And, you know, you can expect probably only a handful of companies to emerge. I thought I should just add that Grab has also raised an additional $600 million recently with SoftBank, although the valuation is undisclosed. And I think they are actually moving a lot into the payment space because one of the things that is happening in Southeast Asia is that there is no unified payment system. And I think PayPal, Stripe, they are also having difficulties because of such a big and fragmented market. I guess we have limited time and I want to come back to the book again, The Upstarts. My penultimate question what are the key lessons that you want your readers to understand from the book? And what are the key things to watch out for this year in 2017 for Airbnb and Uber then? Well, let's see. The, the key, I mean, I, it's funny because I'm, you know, I consider myself a sort of storyteller. I like to tell these business adventure stories. And I sometimes lead it to the reader to go and derive the lesson. You know, certainly we touched on one, which is as like having an abundance of ruthlessness can be dangerous, as we see with Uber, but having an overabundance of idealism can be bad in business as well. 
And we've seen that in you know so many of these other companies that preceded Uber and Airbnb. I think one of the lessons is obviously, you know, Airbnb has done a very great job in casting itself as an idealistic company with a great mission. They had to fight every bit as fiercely as Uber to go and challenge the law and change the law. I was trying to illuminate the stories of how we got here, how in the span of eight years, these companies just created hundred billion dollars in collective value. It's extraordinary, you know, 30 plus billion for Airbnb, 65 plus billion for Uber in the span of eight years. It's truly historic. And so the key lesson, the key thing I wanted the readers to understand is like what happened and why? And then a reader can go and understand, well, maybe somebody reaches a conclusion that this is not how they would ever want to do business. And somebody else might look at it and say, you know, they and feel like they really admire these entrepreneurs for getting everything done that they did. It also helps us understand what is ahead for these companies. And I think for Uber, you know, the challenge is to really mature and, you know, to to bring in a seasoned management team and, and obviously to correct some of these grotesque cultural failings of the past that we've been reading so much about. And I think for Airbnb, the key thing to watch is how well they can do, well, two things. One, you know, does this trips or experiences platform work? Can they become more than a company that's out to sell you some space, some, uh, you know, apartment or home? Can they also help you plan your trip? That's going to be a huge business for them if they can do it. And then the second thing is, you know, cities have woken up to the challenges posed by Airbnb. Not everybody wants to live you know, when their next door neighbor is making their home available to tourists. And so can the company navigate this road and, you know, fight on the behalf of its users and preserve their ability to go and use the Airbnb platform in cities like Tokyo and San Francisco and New York and Madrid or and Barcelona, where perhaps cities aren't all that, that excited about it. That's a key thing to watch for Airbnb. And then Uber, I'll say one last thing is, I think the, the, the Waymo Uber lawsuit, the Google lawsuit over intellectual property of self-driving cars is incredibly important because the potential is that Uber might have to almost start over in its development of, of self-driving cars, in, in which case I think that is a major problem for the company, a major problem for investors and valuation, perhaps long-term would create big problems on their road to an IPO. This will be definitely a continuing story to watch. And I would hope to get you back someday to talk more about Amazon, the everything store, if there's ever possible. But help my audience, Brett, how do they find you? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks, Bernard. You know, I'm easy to find. On Twitter, I'm at Brad Stone. At Bloomberg, we work on a weekly podcast called Decrypted, which you can find, you know, anywhere you, you look for podcasts. Just search for Bloomberg Decrypted or you know, you can send me an email. I'm easy to find. It's bradstone at gmail. You can find me at blongcw at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, TuneIn, and of course, Google Play in the US market. Of course, write to me, rate us five stars on iTunes, and of course, recommend us on Overcast. Once again, Brad, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Bernard.